Good morning, everyone. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Um, it is a fine Friday morning, and for um, our program today, we have as your um, for your presenters today, we have myself, Jacob, Felix. How are you going? And Ari, how's it going? Yeah. So just to introduce Ari, Ari is going to be um, it's, this is um, their first time on the program, and um, they're going to be um, part, um, hopefully part of our Green Left Radio team up at some point in the future. Um, whereas I think Felix is more temporary kind of guests um, <laughs> because he's off work um, kind of at the moment. Um, but yeah, we're very happy to um, have them all um, stepping in um, as presenters um, for Green Left Radio. And yeah, we have a pretty packed program um, kind of day. We're going to be um, covering a lot of different kind of topics, including there's been obviously a lot of kind of developments um, that have happened around the COVID-19 pandemic, especially in New South Wales. So we're going to be interviewing a quite a notable and prominent journalist, um, Osman Farouk, who has um, actually been doing a lot of kind of commentary on this kind of topic. So we're going to have a bit of a kind of discussion on that. So we probably won't go into having any real sort of discussion on the COVID-19 pandemic right now in Australia until we get to that um, to that interview. Um, and I guess just before we go into the program, um, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation. We like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty has never been ceded. And that, um, you know, FreeCR and Green Left Radio um, supports um, the fight back um, that Indigenous people have led um, for their land and sovereignty uh, um, for, since um, the dawn, um, since colonisation. Okay, so I guess for the first kind of part of the program, um, I was going to sort of jump into doing a bit of, a, um, playing a bit of a pre-recording, uh, because Green Left um, recently organised a forum um, behind the Cold War on China, basically starting kind of a bit of a discussion on a bit of the kind of rhetoric, again, there's been a lot of rhetoric um, that's been coming out against China um, of late, and including, like, the drummings of war from politicians, from um, from the likes of Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton. Um, so this forum was organised in response to that. And so I'm going to play um, the, a talk by David um, Holmes, who is a member of Social Science and also recently contributed to a pamphlet by um, Resistance Books um, titled Behind the Cold War in China. So I'll go um, for the next um, 19 minutes. Um, I'll just play a recording of that and um, hope listeners enjoy. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855am. Well, socialists are not the only ones who talk about a new Cold War uh, between the US and China. It's becoming a commonplace in the mainstream media today. But we have an explanation for it. All the endless propaganda and punitive measures against China, 
a part of a campaign by Western imperialism, principally the United States, to isolate and contain China and reassert Washington's hitherto uncontested hegemony, economically, militarily and politically. Despite its enormous power, the US is in relative decline. Just compare its position now to that at the end of World War II. Then it was the unchallenged world superpower, the only one. Now China is an emerging superpower. It is challenging the US, both economically and militarily. And the US is beset by truly massive, glaring social problems, obvious to everybody. Over the last three decades, China's economy has surged forward. Arguably, China now has the world's biggest economy and is vital to world capitalist economic growth. Per capita GDP remains low, but it's rising. One example says a lot for me, and I cited in our pamphlet, China now has 38,000 kilometres of high-speed rail, plans to increase this to 70,000 kilometres by 2035. The US has next to nothing in this regard. Well, in response to China's rise, Washington and its Western allies have pushed a raft of economic measures. Uh, Huawei has been stopped from bidding on contracts. Chinese companies are not allowed to buy certain assets. Trump imposed a range of tariffs, which Biden has not lifted. Australia brought in an unprecedented foreign influence law. Along with these measures, there has been a non-stop drumbeat of propaganda. Um, uh, the Western campaign against China focuses on three broad themes or areas. Firstly, a fake concern for human rights centred on Hong Kong and the Uyghur Muslim minority in uh, Western China. Two, charges against the Chinese government and China-based companies of tech surveillance, spying and industrial espionage. And three, whipping up a fear of Chinese military growth and capabilities. Well, at this point, we have to be clear, I think, on one key point. What is the nature of China in a socioeconomic sense? In our view, it is capitalist. The state promotes and defends capitalism. China had a real revolution in 1949. Land reforms were carried out, and by 1956, the capitalist class had been expropriated. But the Mao leadership was always a privileged, Stalinist, bureaucratic caste. And over the last 30 or so years, it has restored capitalism. And Chris Lee's article in our pamphlet uh, explains this transformation. But having said that, I think we have to recognise that Chinese capitalism has some very distinctive features. The extremely strong centralised state control and the structure of state-owned enterprises. There's some confusion about China on the international left. Some leftists oppose the U.S. Cold War attacks, but to varying degrees, they think that China is socialist or at least non-capitalist. But the hue and cry about Uyghur oppression is just Western propaganda and downplay or reject claims that China is fundamentally undemocratic and repressive. Well, we can discuss all this, but I think such apologetics just weakens our argument. In fact, the case uh, of China is only one instance of some leftists prettifying authoritarian regimes that come under attack by Washington. Other examples include Iraq under Saddam Hussein, Syria under Assad, or Zimbabwe under Robert Mugabe. 
Well, the U.S. charges that the huge uh, Chinese tech company Huawei is under the uh, control of the Chinese government and its technology will be used for spying or might be used for spying. So we can't use any of their telecommunications equipment, even though it seems that it is the cheapest and best. Trump even wanted to force Chinese divestment of the popular video sharing company TikTok, accusing it of posing uh, serious security and privacy issues to its 80 million US users. However, Biden seems to have let that one slide. But Washington's charges overall are staggeringly hypocritical. I just want to look at one instance. In early June, the G7 summit was held in Carbis Bay on Cornwall's north coast. The leaders of the main imperialist countries had a closed session to discuss what to do about China. The final communique predictably attacked China on uh, the Uyghurs and Hong Kong and the origins of COVID. If the G7 leaders had been so minded, they could have travelled up the corner about 100 kilometres as the crow flies to Buda. Now, Buda is the site of a government communications headquarters, GCHQ station, which plays a key role in tapping into transoceanic communications cables. This is the Tempura program first exposed by Edward Snowden in 2013. A wired report uh, at the time explained, and I'm quoting, interceptors have been placed on around 200 fibre optic cables where they come ashore. This appears to have been done with a secret cooperation, voluntary or forced, of the companies that operate the cables, potentially giving GCHQ access to 10 gigabytes of data a second or 21 petabytes a day. GCHQ wasn't exaggerating when it used the phrase mastering the internet in documents. Around 300 GCHQ and 250 uh, United States NSA operatives are tasked with sifting through the data. They use specific searches which can relate to trigger words, email addresses of interest or targeted persons and phone numbers. GCHQ and the NSA have identified 40,000 and 30,000 triggers, respectively. This data is shared with the NSA. Um, another report at the end of quote, another report at the time explained that GCHQ has tapped 200 of the world's fibre optic cables. It is surveilling more than 600 telephone events a day, uh, can intercept emails, check internet users' access of websites, and can see what people are posting on Facebook. So clearly, China has a lot of catching up to do. The West charges really are an extreme case of the pot, of the pot calling the kettle black. Let's look at another uh, example briefly. Last year, a scandal erupted in Denmark, uh, largely unreported here. The Danish equivalent of the FE, the Danish equivalent of the CIA, was exposed as having spied on its EU and NATO allies on behalf of Washington. Left-wing Denmark-based journalist Ron Rittenau summed it up in a COVID action report. Quote, Denmark's military uh, allows the United States National Security Agency to spy on the nation's finance ministry, foreign ministry, private weapons company Terma, the entire Danish population, and Denmark's closest neighbours, Sweden, Norway, France, Germany and the Netherlands. Well, this activity is exactly what the West accuses China of doing. Now, look, now let's look briefly at the question of human rights. 
There's no doubt in my mind that China, among other things, has a repressive authoritarian regime, a dictatorship. It represses the working class and forces them to endure a harsh exploitation, often for the benefit of big Western corporations. It also subjects the non-Han Chinese populations in Tibet and Western China to national oppression. In front of the whole world, it crushed the Hong Kong democracy movement. Whatever the political confusion and mistakes of this movement, calling for Western help, calling for independence and so on, overall it was a very progressive, deeply rooted struggle for democratic rights. And socialists and the left had a duty to support it. But when the West hits uh, China over its repressive policies, it is a bit hard to take it seriously. Just look at the United States. The Black Lives Matter movement shone a searchlight on the nature of U.S. society. There is what has been called a new Jim Crow system based on massive uh, black incarceration and racist killer cop forces across the country. In fact, incarceration in general plays a huge role in the United States. A Wikipedia report explains the facts. Quote, at the end of 2016, the Prison Policy Initiative, a non-profit organization for decarceration, estimated that in the United States, about two and a quarter million people were incarcerated out of a population of 324 million. This means about 0.7% of the population was imprisoned. Total U.S. incarceration, prisons and jails peaked in 2008, and the total correctional population peaked in 2007. If all prisoners are counted, uh, in, uh, then in 2008, the United States had around 25% of the world's almost 10 million prisoners. So the U.S. had almost a quarter of the world's prison population. Uh, as of 2009, the United States had the highest documented incarceration rate in the world at 7.54 per 100,000. Well, a disproportionate uh, proportion of this prison population is, of course, black and minority. Well, the West makes a lot of propaganda about China's military build-up. Uh, a February uh, 26 article by Liu Zhen in uh, a monthly review explains that the Gulf War was a wake-up call for China's lead, uh, military leaders. Um, the Gulf War, he, uh, he says, sparked 30 years of chaos and turmoil in the once powerful Middle East, Middle Eastern country, but also served as a rude awakening for China's military uh, leadership. With the technology and firepower on show during the conflict, precision bombing, satellite guidance, missile interception, air-to-surface strikes to eliminate tanks, electronic warfare, one-way transparency on the battlefield, stealth bombers, the Gulf War was a psychological nuclear attack on China, observers say. The event helped to kickstart China's uh, military modernization and led to the People's Liberation Army narrowing the gap with the U.S. military so much that it is now considered a strategic uh, threat by Washington. Desert Storm, uh, he says, which lasted six weeks, marked the dawn of a warfare revolution, showing backwards of the PLA at the time and sparked anxiety regarding national security, experts say. Well, that's the reality. China's military revolution and arms build-up, whatever else you can say, is fundamentally a defensive measure 
against the threat of a U.S. attack. China saw what happened to Iraq and doesn't want the same fate to befall it. Even if China were a vibrant socialist democracy, which is not the case, it would still face the same U.S. war threat and would be forced to develop a countervailing military force strong enough to deter Washington. Okay, well, Donald Trump has gone and uh, Joe Biden has reversed many of his policies, but one area where he hasn't is China. In fact, he's pushed, pushed some new initiatives aimed at China. And a May 31 Sydney Morning Herald article by Stephen Bartholomews, who seems to be specialising in reporting what's going on in uh, China's economy, discussed uh, the situation and this uh, bill, which Biden was pushing, called the United States Innovation and Competition Act. Uh, a sprawling, he says, a sprawling $250 billion plus suite of legislation aimed squarely at enhancing America's ability to compete with China, along with a grab bag of other anti-China measures, is winding its way through the U.S. Congress. At the core of the legislation, he says, is spending designed to provide incentives for domestic semiconductor manufacturing and research and development in strategic sectors like artificial intelligence, 5G wireless, quantum computing, biotechnology and robotics, industries that China has identified as central to its plans for global technology leadership and into which it is pouring state funds. If this bill calls for Taiwan's inclusion in international bodies, requires an unclassified report on the origins of the coronavirus, opposes international develop, development banks' assistance to China, provides funding to counter predatory bilateral lending, uh, that is code for China's Belt and Road uh, program, and will impose more sanctions on China for its treatment of the Uyghurs in Western China, etc., uh, etc. Et All right. And the U.S. military, uh, we might add, continues to guzzle an enormous amount of, of funds each year. It is renewing nuclear arsenal at great cost and continues to push allies like Japan to shoulder more of a burden of building a military force to counter China. Of course, just as in the long Cold War with the Soviet Union, everything is presented as the U.S. responding to threats from China. In my opinion, the opposite is true. U.S. bases surround China like a noose, and the U.S. has a humongous nuclear arsenal and is the only country which has ever used nuclear weapons in war, and it still refuses to make a, a um, no first strike pledge, no nuclear first strike pledge. The U.S. routinely interferes in the affairs of other countries and organizes destabilization campaigns and coups. Washington is the aggressor and wants to maintain its edge. Its edge. China is right to be concerned. Well, I'm sure uh, David Brophy will have a lot to say about the China panic in Australia. And our pamphlet also uh, refutes a lot of the hysterical cl uh, claims about Chinese influence in Australia. So I'll be brief. Uh, I wouldn't dispute that China is active in the Chinese community here or that it surveils Chinese students in Australia or that it tries to cultivate political figures. Uh, however, the US influence in this regard is qualitatively greater than China's. We can assume it has agents, contacts and informants everywhere, in parliament, in academia, in the community and in the trade unions. I hope people read Jeff Sparrow's recent uh, Guardian piece on Bob Hawke. 
And he was simply a great trade union leader in the 1970s. Hawke was in regular contact with the U.S. Embassy. He said one thing in public and another to his U.S. friends. If Hawke were around today, he might well have fallen foul of the new foreign influence laws. After all, he was an unregistered foreign agent. Well, China's uh, economic influence, I think, has been massively hyped. It is much less than that of the U.S. At the end of uh, 2019, the U.S. and the United Kingdom uh, together accounted for 43% of foreign investment in Australia. China accounted for 5.7%. And all the restrictions will continue to keep China's share low. In some quarters, uh, for instance, China was being blamed for the housing crisis. Again, this is utter rubbish. The housing crisis in Australia is the result of capitalist speculation, tax laws which facilitate this, and above all, the absolute refusal of state and federal governments to build quality public housing on any serious scale. Chinese investment plays an absolutely minuscule uh, part in all of this. Okay, well, in conclusion, how should the left and the progressive movement respond to all this? I want to suggest four key areas for, for propaganda and campaigns. Firstly, left and progressive forces must campaign against any war uh, with China. Secondly, Australia must break with the U.S. Uh, war alliance, that is, withdraw from ANZUS, the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Group, and the Quad, uh, and anything else of that kind. Close down the U.S. bases on Australian soil, especially Pine Gap, and anything else used in nuclear warfare. Three, our military should be reconfigured, reconfigured for strictly local, genuinely defensive activities. Scrap the frightful, frightfully expensive uh, weapons programs, the planes, the submarines and the missiles, which are designed to fit into the US regional war effort and which have nothing to do with the actual defense of Australia against actual threats. Use the money instead for useful programs, the transition to renewables, public housing, health care and public education. Fourthly, uh, we want to see the main elements, the commanding heights of the economy in public hands, nationalise key sectors of the economy, first and foremost the banks, the mining sector and the power industry, under real democratic control. Then we would prohibit, or we should prohibit, any foreign company owning anything. If a foreign company wants to invest here, it should be a joint venture with the state under strict conditions, profit sharing, workers' conditions, environmental safeguards, and so on. Thank you very much. Three CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and you're just listening to a talk by Dave Holmes um, from the public um, from a public forum that was held on this Tuesday online behind the Cold War on China. Now, just uh, I want to sort of just make a kind of few kind of comments. Um, 
And that is, I think, this is, I think, a kind of going to be a kind of very kind of important kind of discussion, I think, in the coming period. And I think it's going to be imperative um, that we kind of build any sort of opposition to this idea of a war against China, because really that is what a lot of the major kind of Western kind of capitalist powers are kind of gearing up around. In fact, one thing comment I sort of want to make is... Um, there's been this whole thing that's linked to a lot of kind of COVID-19 conspiracies, which is this whole idea around that COVID-19 um, has its origins in a lab in kind of Wuhan. And it's sort of interesting. I sort of asked that question. Right now, we're sort of seeing this kind of development where even the kind of Biden administration or even scientists in the United States are kind of attempting to sort of legitimise the, the theory, even though it's not necessarily, even though the version they're sort of legitimised is not as extreme as um, some of the conspiracy theories, I still think that this idea is actually fundamentally, I think, based on very kind of racist sort of assumptions. And obviously, I think the US government, um, regardless of whether they believe it or not, I think there's an element by which they're trying to sort of legitimise it in in the in the from the perspective of trying to sort of undermine um, any um, any sort of public opinion against China. So they don't necessarily care whether it's true or not, um, and it's attempt it's essentially would could be seen as an attempt to sort of undermine China just to kind of prepare the conditions. So yeah, I think I think it is it is actually kind of irrelevant whether it's true because it, like realistically either. It just came from zoonotic origins, from the wet lab, you know, whatever. It is theoretically possible that it was accidentally released from a research lab. There is no evidence and no, like, it's extremely, like, it's ridiculous, I think, that it would be released intentionally. It just doesn't make any sense, especially at the lab itself. So, like, it, it, it might be academically interesting what the origins of the virus are, but to focus so heavily on it, it really does... It, stinks of racism and also there is you can you can feel this undertone of the major powers the imperialist powers want to have this fight with china i you know like i think they they missed the times when they had a big boogeyman in the ussr that they could build up their their arms and you know pay their defense contractors and then grease the wheels of just huge, vast sums of money sloshing around that was never held under any sort of accountability. And they want that back. And China's just a fantastic um, target for that kind of spending and, and uh, yeah, just like just shoveling money up to the top. Yeah. I mean, it's... I think it's an important thing to remember that, like like you said, even if it came from the lab, that's... There's no reason to think it was intentional. And that, like, that idea after investigations have already been done is just pushing the sort of xenophobic anti-China line. And that, like, especially the idea of going to war with China became very popular under Donald Trump for the same reason that wars often, the idea of going to wars often become popular under right-wing leadership, same as in Australia, where, you know, it's the Morrison government trying to divert attention from how royally they've screwed up the whole COVID thing, generally speaking, like how they've screwed out over workers, the unemployed, you know, how they've messed with uh, Centrelink and stuff, 
all of this bad feeling that they have, they hope that they can subsume it with nationalism, try and yeah, and push the push the problem over to somebody else, to some external threat. Yeah, exactly. Create some external threat so that everybody will ignore how terrible they are as like actual leaders, and will just you know rally behind the flag. (laughs) Exactly. We'll just come to believe that there's some massive threat some existential threat to the way we live or something that isn't the right wing trying to kill us all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, um, I think all kind of very kind of good points. And I think, you know, um, yeah, I, I definitely kind of agree The whether the fury is true or not is not really that necessarily that have much relevance. Although that said, I probably, I'm kind of more convinced by some of the takes that um, people on the left have sort of had about the origins of COVID-19 being linked more towards um, industrial kind of agriculture and um, how we treat the environment and animals more uh, more specifically. Yeah, definitely. Pushing, uh, humanity pushing further and further into ecological systems that aren't used to human interaction, like, you know, like the bat, bat caves in Wuhan and whatnot where the virus was first discovered. Um, like, it makes sense that, of course, we would pick up more and more diseases from these environments. Mm. And it's it's... Gonna, it's going to accelerate, especially as those environments are really strained and parts of it uh, have to evolve to, to meet the new environment and we don't know where that evolution is going to take them. All right. Well, um, that might just be time. We're getting close to when our first interview is scheduled to be called in. Um, so I'm just going to go play a quick announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR Community um, commun- Radio on 855 AM. And it is about to hit 7.30. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. Okay, um, we're back and uh, we have on the line Osmond Faruqi, who is a uh, journalist for Saturday Paper and the 7am podcast and frequently in the um, uh, Sydney Morning Herald and The Age uh, newspapers. Um, Osmond's written a an article for the Sydney Morning Herald um, recently called uh, The Simple Measures Needed as Lockdown Exhaustion Hits, 
which is on the 25th of July. Welcome, Osman. G'day, thanks so much for having me up. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So there were quite a few issues that you raised in the um, in the article that you wrote, and it's, it covers quite a lot of bases. So I just wanted to it was, thought it'd be good to get you on just to talk about um, how the the pandemic has it's really sort of brought up to the surface a lot of fundamental issues about our society uh, that were previously sort of covered over and difficult to sort of uh, to see in plain view. Um, it's and I think that you have sort of brought up. A bunch of these issues quite clearly in the uh, in the article. Um, just wanted to sort of maybe firstly just talk about the the way that uh, the response to the virus uh, in both Victoria and New South Wales uh, has uh, brought out both sort of xenophobia and the way that uh, we have a sort of inclination to police the um, the less fortunate the precarious workers and uh, and just have a, a, a massive sort of police and now military response in order to to control the virus and to get ourselves out of it. Sure. I mean, firstly, thanks for reading the article and, and, and it resonating and you wanting to talk to me about it. I'm glad that people found it um, found it useful. I, I was sort of prompted to write it because I felt like I was kind of losing my mind watching... So many people in Australia, so many politicians, including those from the progressive side of politics, demand harsher rules and more policing and even the use of the military as a way to resolve what is first and foremost a public health issue. But you're right. When you cast your mind back to the start of this pandemic last year, Australia really lent much more heavily into things like really restrictive border closures and really punitive policing as a way to deal with the pandemic. And on the surface, you know, you can understand that there's a logic in this virus is coming from external territories. So how do we keep ourselves safe? But I think the problem is in in the context of Australian uh, border control and border policy more generally, and the way that so many politicians use it as and use that kind of rhetoric as a way to keep the public safe or as a way to make them feel like they're safe, at least, it kind of became the primary measure to the detriment of anything else. So Australia closed its borders much harder and much faster than literally any other nation in the world has kept them closed for so long. That obviously has had enormous social consequences for so many people, not just, you know, people with migrant backgrounds who have got family overseas that they can't see, but all sorts of Australians that are trapped here or trapped overseas and can't be with loved ones or friends. And then when you look at the domestic political context, you raise the issue of, of policing. Again, there's not many countries that have instituted fines and compliance regimes as strict as Australia. Even now, looking at 300 soldiers being rolled out across the incredibly culturally diverse and socio-economically disadvantaged southwestern suburbs of Sydney, communities where, for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, the virus continues to spread, largely because of essential work, because of uh, lack of proper communication from the government to people who live there. And the response from the government to all of these challenges, we saw it in, in Victoria during the second wave, the, the way that public housing towers were locked down. The response to these issues isn't how do we best solve this from a public health perspective? How do we keep people safe? How do we engage communities? How do we you know, ramp up things like vaccinations? Instead, it's let's shut down the borders, 
externally, let's shut down the borders internally, and let's use the police and the military as a way to try and stamp out this virus. It, it just doesn't seem to be effective, and it doesn't seem to be fair or just either. You think I've noticed that, um, like, Australia has this uh, history of, like, it, it's very isolationist. It's obviously, we're far away from a lot of other countries, and we're formerly a British colony, which is pretty much the exact other side of the world, and we really feel that. And obviously, in the last couple of decades, we've treated uh, refugees and people coming to the shores of Australia just absolutely appallingly and just have this, I don't know, like, I, I'm not sure how much is being fed by the, uh, by the leadership, by the ruling class, and how much is organic from the culture that we have ourselves this sort of like prickly feeling of constantly being invaded. And then when the pandemic hit, it, be- it became such a good excuse for all of these attitudes to come to the surface and, and have a legitimate reason for closing the borders. Do you think that like it, this is reaching into our history in some way and, and that it's it's touching on something? Do you think that it's there's something bore, bore, broiling up from the... Uh, from the underside of our culture, or is it being sort of imposed on from above and we're just mm. following along? It's a really great question, and it, I think it like it's a bit of a cliche or maybe a boring answer, but it is a bit of both. You know, I think I'm I'm sort of, and I'm sure like yourself, a bit reluctant to to blame ordinary people for so many of the problems that uh, our political class has had created. But I think there's two things going. On. I think you're right. Australia, white Australia, since day one has created a narrative of Australia that is about we got here, this is our land, and no one else is allowed to to take it from us. And that has been manifested throughout the history of Australian politics, including from the, the, the progressive side. You know, you can't forget that the very first act of the the Federated Australian Commonwealth was the, the Immigration Restriction Act, the White Australia policy. There's been a long-standing cultural and political position in Australia that the solution here on almost any issue from, you know, what was the purpose of the Immigration Restriction Act? It was ostensibly about wage control and stopping, you know, those quote-unquote dirty foreigners driving down wages and stealing. So everything from economic policy to now public health policy, the solution is seen as restrictive borders. And I think there was a really significant tipping point last year that so many people still don't remember, but it was one that sent chills down my spine. It was the decision of the... Australian government to use the Christmas Island Detention Centre as a emergency quarantine facility exclusively for Australians and permanent residents returning from Wuhan, China. And that was obviously extremely significant because, as you mentioned, you mentioned refugee policy and the awful way the government treats asylum seekers. There was a direct line between that and what we saw with the pandemic. So obviously Australia set up Christmas Island as an offshore detention centre for years, for decades now. When white Australians on cruise ships were returning at that early stage of the pandemic, they were allowed to return onto the mainland. But when we wanted to bring back Chinese Australians, we sent them to a centre that up until then had only ever been used for asylum seekers or refugees. Yeah, that's actually a really yeah, good observation. I hadn't, I hadn't actually connected those two things. When the Ruby Princess landed in Sydney, of course, everyone was allowed to disembark and then you know, create a massive outbreak. At the time, and that was almost the same time that Chinese people were being locked up in a camp. Like, in Australia, our solution is often lock people up in a camp. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and you can see, I mean, the fact that people just went along with it. I mean, imagine that there's images if hundreds of of white Australians were were locked up on Christmas Island. I think that would shatter a lot of uh, illusions or myths that, that, that white Australians in particular in this country have about how border control works. Yeah. Yeah, and and similarly, when um, more recently, the, um, the when Delta strain was first coming out of India, of course, the immediate response was to block immigration or like any any kind of um, people coming in from India, and yet, <laughs> like there are still the same number of restrictions on people coming from elsewhere, even if they had the exact same variant arriving into Australia. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's worth remembering, again, there's so many things that happened last year that quite understandably we have, you know, just moved on from because it's been such a wild and weird roller coaster over the past 18 months. But you look at the way that Australia closed its borders one by one. It closed the borders to China, to Iran, and to Italy. But when it came time to, like, you know, remember before other countries started to really feel the heat of the pandemic, the U.S. and the U.K., were right up there. I mean, the U.S. was so that Peter Dutton, remember, who at the time was the the uh, the, the, the minister for um, home affairs, he actually went to the United States, caught COVID, and brought it back to Australia. Australia has never instituted a specific ban on travel from the United States or the U.K. As soon as the virus became clear that it was there, it became a national or an international worldwide travel ban. Mm-hmm. And there's been a consistent difference. If you look at the numbers that the Department of Home Affairs has, has released in terms of where exemptions are being granted, in terms of where people can travel from, there's a distinct class and racial bias to them. It, it seems completely disconnected from where the virus is. It, it just seems to prioritise wealthy European countries at the detriment of the developing world. And um, in terms of the internal response, uh, do you feel like for journalists there is it is very difficult to sort of bring up these kinds of points that people are very, or, or no, not necessarily ordinary people, but uh, the uh, media organisations in the state mm. uh, have a particular line and that if you deviate from it, it's, it just becomes a bit more difficult to, to express these views. Like they're creeping authoritarianism within mm. me, the media. Is, is this something that you've noticed? Yeah, it's, it's a funny one. I mean, like I... Um I'm no stranger to sort of being out on a limb in the, in the media industry. I, I you know, I um, am probably a bit of an outlier in a lot of ways in terms of my background and the things that I like to talk about and cover. So it doesn't necessarily bother me. But one thing I found like quite difficult last year in particular, being here in Melbourne during the second wave, it was obviously very stressful and, and exhausting for all of us. And I did a lot of reporting on the way that uh, the, the state government mishandling of public health and like really focusing on the fact that what went wrong here was a lack of long-term investment in public health capability. And that's kind of why the second wave got out of control, overly reliant on private contractors and, and you know, uh, management consultants to deal with these things. That's the problem, and the focus should be there rather than how to better police things. I copped so much blowback from so many people who thought it was the job of journalists or anyone with any kind of profile in the community to just support the, the state government. And to me, that's not the role of journalism. The role of journalism is to hold power to account. And that automatically puts you on the side. It puts you on the side of ordinary people who are at the whim of, of power, whether that power is powerful businesses, whether that's governments, whether that's powerful media organizations themselves. So I think that is a pretty good principle for journalism generally. I think a lot of journalists, unfortunately, 
lose sight of that and they sometimes become part of the problem. Yeah, like I, I definitely think that it's it became extremely clear, especially in Melbourne's second wave, that uh, the you, you could see, you could really see there was, is almost a big flag or sign just showing how underinvestment in health and education and how the way that our society works in terms of having precarious workers on short-term contracts forced to work in multiple workplaces and obviously they're essential, so there's no way of, of doing it from home and there's no way of locking down into a single workplace. And also a lot of these communities coming from migrant backgrounds where they have, they're quite crowded because of the housing situation and they, they live with their family members and everyone. That's where the, the second wave really started off and people were completely unaware that it was happening because it, it's just outside the normal media sphere and uh, of course, when it happened, the immediate response was to call in the police, lock down the towers, and then create a ring of steel with using the military, which is using a, an authoritarian um, band-aid over these huge structural problems that go back to the Kennedy era and earlier. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're totally spot on. It's like over the past three decades, Australia has done... I mean, it's done a lot of things, but particularly in relation to sort of economic or, or industrial policy, it has completely gutted the public sector, particularly public health and education, as you said, and it has atomized and completely destroyed what was, not completely, but severely weakened the industrial relations system from the perspective of workers and, and labor. So we've got an extremely precariously employed uh, working class we, that don't have adequate sick leave, you know, don't have the confidence to, to take time off to get tested or vaccinated, for example. So we've got these two things that have been slowly happening for the past 30 years. And then a pandemic hits. And the one thing you want in the pandemic is a strong public sector, public health care system and workers that have, uh, you know, proper conditions and pay, which we didn't have. And so it ripped right through those communities in particular. And so much is being made about Melbourne versus Sydney and how New South Wales handled it and how Victoria handled it. And all of that is a distraction from the fact that we're basically seeing the same thing in both these cities. We're seeing migrant, low-income communities who work in uh, essential industries but have very little agency, who live in large share houses or, or with their families, who are forced to work, who don't have adequate, uh, you know, a pay to let them sit at home and you know watch Netflix like middle-class people like me. That is where the virus is ripping through. It's exactly what we saw in Singapore. It's what we saw in the United States. What we saw in the UK. It's a pattern of how this virus spreads. But in Australia, there's a deep unwillingness to, to grapple with that. Instead, we make it some kind of moral failing. You know, when when we hear stories about how two Iraqi immigrant removalists, you know, broke the laws and, and brought the virus into regional New South Wales, rather than thinking why in the middle of the pandemic two migrants are working as subcontractors for a furniture removal company, that's clearly not something they're desperate to do, right? It's something that they're doing to put food on the table and a roof over their head. Our response isn't how do we how do we change that? How do we fix these problems? It's to charge them, to send them in jail. Those guys have been charged and are in are in front of court right now. It's such a from my perspective, a depressing set of affairs that we are willing to use criminal law and the police and the military to resolve this this public health crisis. One thing that I really think has been exposed is is the way that quite a lot of people in the middle class uh, like, you know, a lot of my friends are in uh, middle-class educated type people. And they, there is just a complete lack of understanding about what 
a huge proportion of society is actually going through. And like there's there's this sort of uh, virtuous um, feeling about, oh, if we all pull together and we do these little, um, you know, cute little things, you know, our Zoom phone calls and, <laughs> you know, like then that that's how we defeat the virus. And that anybody who, who goes against that is just so alien to a lot of, you know, people that, that I talk to that they can't comprehend it and they think they're not virtuous and that they need to be punished, you know. <laughs> it totally. Is, it's, it's, uh, it's a really it's a really interesting thing. And it, it's another thing that I think Australians are not very willing to talk about or grapple with. Like, I've lived in, in Sydney and Melbourne, you know, the two biggest cities in Australia, two of the most diverse cities in Australia and the world. But they're also cities that are deeply segregated on class and racial lines. I mean, I think Sydney, more so than Melbourne, you know, where you can cut the city into the north and the east, which are deeply white and deeply middle class, and to the uh, southwest and the west, which are heavily migrant areas. And, and Melbourne has similar, um, you know, kinds of, of, of population and demographic distribution. What that means is you have enormous waves of the population. Look at journalists, for example. It, it's like, you know, been very well documented that journalists live in you know, these kind of white enclaves of, you know, the inner south of the inner north of Melbourne or the eastern suburbs of the inner west of Sydney, and they don't interact with, with the, the other part of the population. So they can't comprehend what's going on. And I, and I see this in, in conversations I have or questions that get asked at press conferences, like, how is it happening? How are these people still spreading the virus? It's just a complete unawareness that the people that are stocking stacking your shelves in grocery stores, the people who are the contract cleaners doing deep cleans of high-risk environments, the, the nurses and the aged care workers, they don't live in Bondi. They don't live in Fitzroy. They live in these uh, lower-income, out-of-suburban suburbs. They have to work. They live in larger houses, either through share houses or family. They can't just, you know, have Zoom cocktails every evening and, and group watch Netflix. And that's not me attacking people who do that. Like, everyone needs to grapple with this virus however they can. But you're totally right that there is a massive disconnect between how a lot of middle-class Australians perceive the world and what the actual reality of this country is. We've got um, Ari here as well in the studio, so uh, they've got a question for you. Yeah, just on the the issue of the disconnect, it's definitely making me think of the, the difference between last year, there was, you know, the virus came back from Aspen, and then, uh, similar to the recent thing with the, the Iraqi removalists, there were some people who broke the lockdown in Victoria, some, I think, African young women mm-hmm. who went up, you know, who left Victoria. And the massive stark difference in the way that they were Enemy treated. of the state, I remember. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Enemy of the state compared to, like, their pictures were on newspapers compared to these rich white people coming back from Aspen or whatever, who we never really heard about. It's just, oh, this is a thing that happened. Don't even worry about it. But then there are these scary brown people who are spreading the virus all over the place. It's that, like you said, that big disconnect where you have journalists living in the, um, <clears throat> pardon me, where you have journalists who are, you know, separating themselves to an extent from this, like, broader view of society, who then take that uh, attitude of us versus them, of, you know, it's us uh, you know, white people, the whites probably whispered, mm. versus everyone else. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so fascinating that we can name and see the photos of so many people who the government and journalists want to blame for this, and that overwhelmingly, if not exclusively, are people of colour. Like you said, no one knows the name of the Aspen couple, you know, and mm. it's not that I think that they should be named and shamed. I think no one should be named and shamed, but 
when you have one group of people who are and another group of people who haven't been, that kind of does show you how stark problem is. Yeah, and exactly. um, we've got uh, Jacob here as well in the studio. Um, yeah, so I just had a bit of a question because um, we're kind of getting, um, we probably have to conclude the interview um, a bit soon. And I guess this is just an important sort of question I think I sort of step in to sort of ask. Um, mm. But obviously, um, we all know in the last, last weekend, um, there was uh, quite a, a large-sized anti-lockdown kind of protest, and um, in both Melbourne and well, in Sydney was probably uh, probably it was a lot bigger. Yeah, oh, it was a lot bigger. And in fact, um, in Sydney, um, what I kind of observed was there was actually a much more diverse sort of ranges of kind of people um, present. Um, although overwhelmingly, my my kind of assessment is overwhelmingly this these kind of the politics of these protests is generally very right wing um and generally nothing that no left wing person can support and i kind of want to just hear your kind of opinion on sort of the roots of some of these um some of these conspiracy theory type thinking some of the far right politics that's kind of involved in some of these anti-lockdown protests and i guess how it kind of links with i guess all this sort of things that we've been talking about in terms of the, the terms of the government's response because ultimately I kind of have the viewpoint that um, I don't necessarily think that you know people believing in these wild conspiracy theories are necessarily the cause um, I mean mm. I think it's problematic but I think actually think a lot of the failure um, um, goes with government for um, allowing these kind of ideas to fester so I think I want to kind of hear your kind of comments yeah no, it's on that. a really good question I'll try and um, I'll try and be brief you know so many different things I could literally talk about this topic for three days non-stop yeah. um, I've, I've spent a bit of time in the last year um, talking to some of the actors involved in organizing these rallies and it's so diverse right you've got a, a broad spectrum of people from anti-vax uh, folk who've been anti-vax for a very long time people who think that the pandemic is a attempt to create a new world order to you know far-right agitators who are seeing an opportunity to create chaos or or tap into a frustration and a lot of that a lot of that regardless of where you sit or how sympathetic or not you are uh, not sympathetic to these organizers or attendees at all a lot of it does stem from a long term and growth of and and that we've figured it out and right side but throughout history when you see divisions rise when you see uh you know class distinctions become sharper and you see people with faith with institutions you see that polarization and people can get drawn into different kinds of responses and in this instance we're seeing people drawn being drawn into the kind of conspiratorial stuff but i think you're also right that what we saw in sydney this time was something slightly different slightly different there was certainly that core of people i was explaining earlier but there was also a different core i I think like calling them working class is perhaps not accurate a lot of maybe like small business owners or or, or tradie types who feel like the lockdown has financially impacted them and they they're not necessarily conspiracy theorists they're protesting against what they see as a lot of income and impacts to their business but i think what that shows and i think what concerns me about that is as this movement, as, as these lockdowns go on, as the pandemic continues to go on, and as people continue to be let down by governments on this, both state and federal, I don't see these rallies getting smaller. I see more and more people being drawn towards them for whatever reason. And I don't think that means we have to sympathise with them. I think what it speaks to is people on the left need to have a sharper critique of what's going on. I don't think saying, you're, you're so stupid for not supporting the lockdown, why can't you just stay at home? How dare you be upset that you're losing income from this? I just don't think that's a rational or 
or even not even rational, pr- pr- politically strategic response. Um, I think too much of the progressive side has just been a knee-jerk defensiveness of the role of government here in terms of policing and borders and military that we've been talking about. And I think uh, the, the lockdown protests being so big are a reminder that there's a real risk here, that a lot of people who should be allies to this idea of expanding public health and of creating better working conditions might instead be drawn towards more far-right kind of thinking. Well, we um, need to wrap up in a second, but do you have any more like final comments to make, maybe about the um, the vaccine rollout and and the sustainability of all of these just constant lockdowns and and um, border? Yeah, closures? I think look, we're at a point now where it's pretty clear that we're just going to be facing the risk of lockdowns until we get the country vaccinated. I know there's a lot of hesitancy around people wanting to get AstraZeneca. The government has absolutely messed up the supply of Pfizer. But I just think, you know, it's so there's been so much self-interest in running down or attacking the, um, the, the, the vaccine rollout. And I think that has stymied things. I've got my vaccine appointment at 11 o'clock today. Um, oh, you know, I, um, I, I think that's the only way out, really. And I encourage everyone who's in a position to do so to do it. Yeah, yeah, me too. I got mine a couple of weeks ago. Bit of a fevery awesome. night of the the first dose of AstraZeneca, but uh, I've been telling everyone, just get it, you know. So, <laughs> totally, totally. That's the way out. I mean, one final comment I kind of want to make is um, on that is, I mean, it's sort of, we're kind of in a, a kind of funny and a weird time, and I've sort of made this comment a few times um, to my partner and a few other people, um, that, you know, we're, um, we're kind of living in this time where anti-vaxxers are actually probably da- very dangerous because really ultimately you could probably get by in life without getting most of the vaccines that um, that are kind of mandatory at this stage um, mm. because, you know, we've killed most of those, va- um, those viruses yeah, in the yeah, community totally. because of the vaccines themselves. But actually the COVID-19 vaccine, if there was any time to get a vaccine and in your life, this is the oh, time yeah. to get one. I'm pretty sure yeah, it'll come to a time when you've either got the vaccine or you'll get the virus. <laughs> and in fact, yeah. that's actually what's happening in the United States right now, unfortunately, because there's actually a very strong um, anti-vaxxer kind of movement. Um, but of course, it's all being propped up by Republicans um, and the whole right-wing kind of trajectory of that whole entire country. <laughs> yeah, well, um, thanks very much for coming on the show, Osman. Um, Thanks so much for letting me, you know, have a pop off about all of these things. Really appreciate it. No, it's always good to have uh, these views sort of talked about. There's uh, so many issues and so many issues that are not really uh, brought up by the the mainstream media that just need to get an airing and and to, to uh, be it's discussed. Like three CR rules. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, Keep doing. Cool. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for being on our program again. Um, we really appreciated having you. No worries. All right. Um, we're just having a discussion with Osman Farouk here. And, um, yeah, we're just having a bit of a, a, a kind of good sort of long discussion about all things related to the kind of this COVID-19 pandemic. But what we particularly were kind of focusing on was more the kind of disproportionate kind of response of how the gov- of how government has implemented um, lockdowns and especially disproportionately how they impact on people of colour. Um, and marginalised communities. And in fact, one of the kind of recent sort of developments I just want to sort of highlight in relation to that is um, the New South Wales government has actually just made an announcement yesterday that they're going to be deploying the um, ADF 
um, in, ter- um, in terms of enforcing um, the rules um, or COVID kind of compliance. Now, that's sort of a, that is a bit of a new development compared to what happened in Victoria. Although Victoria, there was some talk of ADF being utilised for COVID compliance, but I don't think it necessarily... I never really noticed that. I, they, definitely they were um, used on the, the Ring of Steel. Like I had to show my papers every time I went to work in Benella. But um, I've never heard of, I hadn't heard in Melbourne of the ADF being used for actual compliance measures. But yeah, I'm not sure if that, that has happened before. Yeah, well, one thing I kind of read was in the Victorian context, um, the um, the military don't actually have the ability to enforce the, the laws that the Victorian police have enforced. So that that is, a, um, but on the other hand, State of emer- if there's a state um, in the context of state of emergencies being declared, um, the government can essentially, you know, bend the rules a bit to um, to their favour, which is something we have to be, I think, cautious a, a oh, bit yeah. about. Mm. Um, and I think, yeah, and I think this is a bit of a new development. But on the other hand, we'll just based on the kind of Victorian experience, um, there is sometimes there, there is a, a bit of overhype in the in the media um and i think there was a, quite a lot of overhype around how strict these rules were going to be enforced and obviously we were critical of all the kind of disproportionate response like the public housing kind of lockdown but yeah it's going to be interesting to see what kind of transpires and i think yes we have to be speaking out against these punitive measures being uh, applied because really you know ultimately you know i i think lockdowns are necessary and i think they're going to be necessary until you know, until we get fully kind of vaccinated. But there is a lot of criticisms as we kind of were talking to Osman um, about that could be kind of made about lockdowns and how they are applied. Yeah, you've got to resist the creeping authoritarian. Mm. Now, I'll just go play um, a quick um, a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, and, yep, I'll, I'll, and we'll go on, move on to the Green Left activist calendar. I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe... The number is 94198377. You've been listening to the same. You could never understand. Feel the fortune flowing. You know it isn't stuck. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 
triple one five hundred. That's one three hundred triple one five hundred. Wellway supports three CR. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and it is now just about time for the Green Left um, activist calendar. Now. Given that um, lockdown has sort of just eased, um, it's going to be a bit of a mix, I think, of online and in-person events. Um, so the first event I kind of just want to highlight is tomorrow there is going to be an online rally organised by the Tamil Refugee Council, um, Sri Lanka Not Safe for Tamils. That's apparently going to be happening at 2 p.m. as far as I know, but I'll check the, well, actually 6 p.m. Um, that's actually, <laughs> I just looked at the time, it's... um. It's going to be at 6 p.m. on on a on a on a on a Saturday, and you can find the details, get the kind of online link and everything by looking up on the um, by looking up on the Tamil Refugee Council Facebook page. And then on Monday, on August the 2nd, there's going to be another online forum, Indefinite Detention for Refugees, what the new law kind of means. And um, that meeting is going to be held via Zoom. Um, So if you look up the Refugee Action Collective website, you should be able to get the kind of details there. And on Friday, August the 13th, I'm just going through all the different kind of refugee activists, um, um, ac- um, action collective kind of events. Um, for now, then I'll go to some of the other kind of general events coming up. Um, on the 13th, Friday, 13th of August, um, this was a vigil that was postponed, um, because of the lockdown, but it's going to be now happening on, um, on Friday, August the 13th at 7pm at the at Lincoln Square and it's basically around eight years too long, free the refugees and it's basically, essentially it's been eight to nine years since um, Kevin Rudd introduced the PNG solution. So that's going to, the vigil is going to be focused politically on that. And then on um, Sunday, August the 29th, there's going to be uh, another postponed rally. This was um, organised by uh, a rally for refugee rights, permanent visas, not discrimination, rally for refugee rights. And that's going to be happening on Sunday, August the 29th. And anyway, that <laughs> that protest has actually been postponed two times because of um, a lockdown. But I think it's really important that it happens. It's it's a, a refugee uh, it's a refugee rights rally that's actually been primarily organised by refugees and refugee-led organisations. Um, so I think it's a very important um, protest, I think, to support, especially since its particular focus is on supporting refugees who are currently living here. Because clearly, you know, there's the government's refugee policy is absolutely appalling, like the way they treat refugees offshore and onshore, like the, the whole mandatory kind of tension kind of regime. But ultimately, the other issue that we have to be conscious about is what about the refugees who are somehow lucky to get some freedom? What are we going to be? Um, what are we going to be doing about their rights? So that's um, that's going to be that's going to be the focus of that particular rally. And then there's another refugee rally on Saturday, September the fourth um, at two p.m. This is another postponed rally. Um, that's going to be happening on um, um, Free the Medevac Refugees Union Solidarity Rally, and that's going to be organised by trade um, trade union activists who support refugee rights. Um, and that yeah, that will be um, yeah, that will be happening on um, Saturday, September the fourth, um, and I'm um, just outside the park hotel at 2 p.m. All right. Now, just the next sort of events I just want to sort of highlight. Um, there is on Thursday, August the 5th, there's going to be an online forum, Solidarity with Myanmar, and that's going to be um, organised by the, that's been organised by the Search Foundation. So if you search up the Search Foundation on Facebook, um, you should be able to find the details on how to get the online kind of link. Um, on 
on um, on Wednesday, August the 11th. Um, as far as I know, let me double check. There's going to be a no trade-offs for Faulkner, save our outdoor pool. And that's going to be happening outside the Moreland City Council, Moreland Civic Centre, 90 Bell Street in Melbourne. And that's going to be happening at um, 6.15pm. And basically the campaign, it's a, a local um, rally that's basically about um, protesting against the closure of an out- outdoor pool. And then on Thursday, um, August the 19th, there's going to be a rally, student protest for client action at 1pm at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street, and that's been organised by Uni Students for Climate Justice. Okay, so yeah, that pretty much, I think, wraps up um, the Green Left kind of activist calendar. Um, and just, I just want to spend just a few minutes just um, highlighting... Um, like just a note, um, Green Left, um, both Green Left and Free CR, um, depend on the support of, fi- um, depend on financial support to keep going. Um, and yeah, I think if you, we've just recently kind of had our radiophon, so, but if, but Free CR is always kind of looking for, kind of, Free CR Community Radio is always looking for kind of donations, so you can make a donation at free, by going on to freecr.org.au. And more, and also importantly, Green Left, which is, um, the, the um, media publication that is, that this um, radio program is um, centred around um, also depends on the um, generous support of our supporters to keep people-powered grassroots kind of media to basically give the stories um, from the ground on the activists in the activist world and basically prioritise the stories of ordinary people over that of corporations and big business. So, yeah, you can also become a supporter of Green Left um, for as low as $5 a month or $10 a month. Um, you can just become a supporter at greenleft by going to greenleft.org.au forward slash support. All right. Now I'll just go play, um, I think I'll play, I'll play a quick, um, a, a quick announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio. From every corner of the land, womankind Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20.
Hello, and welcome back to Green Left Radio on 3CR Community Radio. We're here with Josh Callanan, Secretary for the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, who's recently had a victory with uh, Better Red Than Dead Bookshop in Sydney. Uh, hello, Josh. Hey, good day. Thank you for coming on. And um, I, <clears throat> pardon me, I was hoping that you could give us a bit of a summary of uh, what led to the dispute what sort of actions were taken, that sort of thing, uh, just for people who aren't aware? Yeah, sure. So this has been a um, huge campaign for a group of workers at a bookshop in Sydney in Newtown, which trades on a very progressive basis, calling themselves Better Red Than Dead. Uh, these workers had a range of concerns over a long period of time, years, um, that led them to get organised late last year um, and in March of this year finalise a set of claims uh, for a enterprise agreement uh, with their employer, which would set a new standard for workers, not just in their bookshop, but not just in the bookshop and book retailing industry, but across retail and fast food. So those claims were brought together, put to the employer in late March. The employer initially agreed and then reneged on bargaining. We had to take them to the Fair Work Commission. Um, they eventually agreed. We had a couple of bargaining sessions and then... Uh, the employer refused to go any further. Workers then took, um, well, what, what is historic action in the retail setting in Australia? They uh, went about the process of getting a protected action ballot order. Uh, that ballot order was made and workers unanimously voted in that, unanimously got access to all the forms of industrial action that they had listed. Um, which was fantastic. It was the first protected action ballot in, well, they've only been around for 10 years, but, but it was the first one in retail for non-meat workers. Um, and it was fantastically supportive. Then they, then they put those, put those bans in place. So two weeks ago, um, three weeks ago, they started their first bans. Um, and then they put a ban on web orders and on picking returns, which is picking old books off the shelves to return to publishers for a financial return. Um, basically sending back old stock. That led to the employer uh, only last week um, turning around and sanding down workers, locking out workers uh, from Monday. Um, it was a massive escalation. Um, we, uh, along that course, workers had faced all sorts of issues from, uh, from simply sharing a union Facebook post. They were issued cease and desist letters and threats of prosecution and threats of criminal offences. Workers were, were issued with show cause termination letters for why they shouldn't be sacked. In the end, two of our members and activists were retrenched and we're currently pursuing their cases through the Commission and courts. Um, and a welfare fund was set up for work, those workers as well as workers who were locked out. And the immense amount of support from the community led to over $22,000 being raised in just a week and a half. A fantastic show and, and really gave members the support they needed to know that they would get paid in, in woefully low-paid uh, low work. They would get paid while they were locked out. Um, and there was some also fantastic support from authors, uh, led by a couple of great authors, authors Alison and Amwin, and, uh, and card, cartoonist extraordinaire Sam Woolman, um, which got a, an article together in Overland with over 300 authors signing an open letter in support of the workers. All that happened very quickly. And, uh, and with the lockout starting just on Monday, on Tuesday, the boss sat down with workers again and negotiated a new agreement. 
So um, that agreement was then unanimously endorsed by members late on Tuesday night and uh, the industrial action's been lifted and workers are celebrating um, a landmark agreement in, in, in both their shop, the industry, but right across retail and fast food. We haven't seen any outcome, anything like this in, uh, in the sectors. Yeah. In an uh, interview you did recently on Tuesday with Green Left, you did. You described the agreement as superior to any retail or fast food in Australia. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. Could you go into a little bit of detail on, like, what the specifics of the agreement were? Yeah, sure. So, so, so these are conditions which are unheard of in uh, the retail and fast food sectors. Um, we know that some heavily unionised sites might have conditions uh, similar, and certainly higher wages. Uh, but for retail and fast food, they're unheard of. So the first one was all of our members, uh, upon the agreement being signed, will be offered conversion to ongoing secure employment uh, with the employer. At the moment, the vast majority of staff are engaged on a casual basis. No matter if they've been there for years or not, they're engaged on a casual basis. So the first one was conversion, genuine conversion, as in they will be offered conversion to ongoing employment. Um, commensurate with the shifts that they've been available for. Uh, the second was uh, that that would be an enduring right for new casual workers that have served 12-month service. Uh, the third is that there is a suite of job security protections for an employer that has been doing it tough. Uh, there is a suite of protections to ensure that there'll be at least a month of consultation over any major changes. There will be uh, notice periods for redundancy, uh, and there will be severance pay, which there hasn't been until now for in the case of redundancy. There is a new wage that's set for workers that convert to part-time employment. They'll be paid a dollar more than the minimum wage in the award. And that might compare for, for listeners to, at the moment, Coles pays a few cents more than the award. Woolworths pays maybe about 20 cents more than the minimum award. Kmart pays one cent per hour more than the award. Hungry Jack's one cent per hour more than the award. These are employers with uh, with old, well, with new SDA deals, which pay such woefully low rates. So one dollar more per hour. All workers, uh, after doing a one-month probation period, will be classified at level three in the award, not at level one, which is worth another four or five percent as well. Junior rates will be abolished after probationary period. So after a month probation, junior rates will be abolished for all workers, including our members that are under 21. At the moment, a 16-year-old would only get um, around about 50% of the award rate. A 19-year-old would only get 80% of the award rate. All of those junior rates will be abolished after serving a one-month probationary period. Uh, there will be 20 days paid domestic violence leave. Absolutely unheard of in any in any retail or fast food company in Australia. Six months paid parental leave, uh, unheard of in, in our sectors ever. Um, there will be um, there's a range of other conditions which are peculiar or particular to the workplace. So issues around getting employment contracts for everyone, um, issues around ensuring that workers have a clear statement about the duties that they can do and not have to do um, other duties. Sunday rates will be restored to 100%, cut by the SDA repeatedly over decades. And then in 2017, the Fair Work Commission used that to cut Sunday rates to 50% across the sector. They will be restored to 100%. Um, and a suite of health and safety clauses that 
provide a clear, enforceable base, guaranteeing a healthy and safe workplace, guaranteeing policies around bullying, harassment and discrimination, guaranteeing a core set of standards when it comes to health and safety that can be easily enforced by them and their union through the Fair Work Commission if need be. So that's a sort of a summary of many of the conditions that have been secured. It's some amazing achievements. I understand that uh, the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union is also in a dispute with uh, readings. And what do you think this success, what impact do you think the success with uh, Better Red Than Dead will have on that and broadly the sort of work that the union does and the union movement in general going forward? Well, we've, we've always known, as a genuine cutting union, we've always known that the only way to secure conditions to lock them in is to have organised workplaces and for workers to engage in direct industrial action to withhold their labour. That, that is the only way. It's the way workers have done it for centuries. It is the only way to lock things in and to ensure that workers get a fair a fair outcome when it comes to enterprise agreement negotiation. <laughs> so the, the, this story says is a shining light for us. It is a beacon for us for all workers in retail and fast food, that these types of conditions and power in their workplace is within their grasp. All they need to do is get organised and, and RAFL is the vehicle for them. So, so that's the first thing. We know that we can achieve these things. Here's a clear, simple example when workers get organised. At Readings, Readings is very similar to um, Better Red Than Dead in that it, it trades on a progressive image. You know, there's unions that buy their book vouchers from there. There's lots of progressive people that buy products from Readings. And it's done um, partly because of their progressive image compared to um, some of the other historical booksellers. Uh, what, what's clear now is that there is a new base. The new base has been established with Better Red Than Dead. If Readings wants to set itself apart, um, it needs to do more than what Better Red Than Dead has committed to in this new agreement. Uh, workers at Readings are just um, starting their bargaining process. It has been a long process. Workers there were trying to bargain in 2018 and their employer waged an anti-union campaign against them and their organising. That said, workers secured a range of outcomes then, just not in an agreement. And they're outcomes that can be denuded, can be impacted over time. So they were able to secure in 2018 by getting organised a protection to the Sunday penalty rate, conversion from some work to some workers, and health and safety rights and sexual harassment policies. So there were some wins back then. But they are always under threat, and workers now have a new minimum that they can look to better read than dead and demand be enforced and put into place at, at readings bookshops. Workers uh, had to take their case. The employer refused to bargain. They took their case to the Fair Work Commission and we won. We, we conducted a ballot and workers voted, a majority of workers voted in that ballot to want to bargain. And so the employer has now agreed to bargain um, through that process. And we're hoping negotiations will kick off soon. Workers there are looking at better red than dead um, and the outcomes there and no doubt um, at new minimum will... And, and the campaign they waged and how they went about winning a better red than dead will be a clear example for our members at Readings to go about the same path. Mm, it's good stuff. Uh, we have to wrap up shortly. Do you have any final thoughts? Oh, look, I think that 
for, for listeners that um, uh, weren't able to participate last night, we had a special um, short community forum, 40 Minutes, where we had four workers tell their story of bargaining. Um, there are, you know, it's only just been the last few days, but they got on a call and um, workers can look at that um, on our Facebook page. Um, we'll end up doing more. We'll share more information about how this was won, but to hear their own words about what they did, how they did it and how they won, I'd encourage everyone to check out the Facebook Live last night from Rafu on our Facebook page and hear what these workers had to say. Well, thank you very much, Josh, for yeah. talking to us. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you very much, Josh. See you. All right. Um, you're, we're just um, I'm talking to Josh Collin, um, Secretary of the of RATFU, um, Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, about the recent victory that the Better Dead Than... Um, Better read than dead. Better read than dead workers um, had at, um, at in um, Newtown, and yeah, I think um, Josh kind of like kind of actually kind of pointed out there's actually a, a kind of trend of these sort of progressive kind of trendy businesses who kind of trade on a very kind of progressive kind of image, um, but are actually uh, but have actually kind of partake in export um, can be some of the most exploitative kind of workplaces. Yeah, it's just another market for them. Yeah. yeah. It's just a way of marketing their brand, and it's a very common one, of course. Mm. Yeah, so um, just um, we're getting into kind of like the end of the uh, kind of program, and I just kind of want to just give a opportunity um, because um, Green Left Radio is kind of going for a stage where we're actually bringing in some new presenters, and so some of you have probably noticed that we have um, kind of Felix and Ari here. So I just kind of wanted to give them kind of just a quick opportunity to kind of introduce themselves to our listeners um, for the last part of our program. All right. Thanks, Jacob. Uh, I'm Felix, and um, I've been a presenter on and off for Green Left Weekly Radio over the last maybe three years, I think, but uh, probably only done a handful of them. Uh, I usually work in, in construction as an engineer, and um, the hours don't quite match up, but uh, at the moment I'm out of work, so I'm happy to lend a hand. So it's good to be here. And I'm Ari. I'm doing a PhD in literature and philosophy, which is uh, fun stuff. And I also do a podcast called The World Cycle, which is a fiction podcast, which is one of the reasons that I wanted to be on Green Left to get some practice with presenting and that sort of thing. I didn't didn't realize that. I have to check it out. Yeah, everybody look it up. It's on Spotify. World Cycle. Yeah. And um, yeah, actually, I I actually listened to I actually listened to one of your stories. think once yeah. um didn't somebody force you to <laughs> well I, I don't remember <laughs> i remember being forced to <laughs> but yeah i did listen we played it on our we played it on our, our nice um sound system um with the 200 dollars sound bar um yeah and it, it was projected on onto a, a big screen tv so yeah like the spotify menu screen was projected on a big screen yeah. tv so it's like yeah you that's like when you when you develop a podcast. <laughs> yeah. That's like what you imagine people are going to listen. To. They're going to be listening <laughs> to it on their nice fancy sound systems, and it's like yeah, that's how you know you've made it. Not Ooh. just um, on their smartphones, running to the train with, a with, with their earbud in, with their terrible iPhone <laughs> earbuds. Like yeah. yeah, it's like ooh, I might have to improve the production quality. People are going to do that, eh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, 
we're probably getting into um, the end of our program now. Um, I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, we've had quite a big, we had quite a packed program covering actually a lot of big topics. We covered um, China um, through the recording of the of the China Forum by Greenleft. We had a kind of long discussion about um, the COVID nineteen pandemic, um, the lockdowns, the far right, and this. Um, and then we also then covered a rich a, a industrial kind of victory. Um, with, um, from talking to um, Josh Cullen from um, the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. So, yeah, as I said, like to thank all our listeners and, yeah, say, um, feel for, um, tune in next Friday. And, yeah, this um, program will also be podcasted and uploaded on the FreeCR website at freecr.org.au. So um, it should be uploaded probably with our... It will be uploaded probably by the end of the day. So, yeah, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you very much for listening. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from your slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now, thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions, serve all masses, arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.